Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist, artist, and writer. And today, after a pretty long hiatus, I'm sitting down with Opal co-founders Julie Church, Lexi Giblin, and Kara Bozzi. And we wanted to break some of our silence on the podcast around the Black Lives Matter movement and what information Opal has been taking in during this time um, and the kinds of actions and conversations that have been happening within the walls of Opal. So the three of you, I'd love to hear just maybe Lexi starting us off. Where have you all been in thinking about Opal's role within the work of anti-racism? Okay, well, before we dive in today, we wanted to give a content warning about this podcast today because we are white women who will be talking about anti-racism work today. And if you identify as a person of color, we um, prioritize your well-being and support you in opting out of listening to this podcast if you decide that's what's right for you. And we've been silent on social media and I wanted to talk about what actually has been going on within the walls of Opal as the silence on our social media certainly doesn't communicate what's actually been happening. So today we're gonna to share some of the um, initial changes we're making to become more anti-racist as an eating disorder treatment facility. Julie, Kara, and I have been busy, busy, busy re-envisioning higher level of care eating disorder treatment from an anti-racist perspective. And we'll share more today. Before we dive into our, our current anti-racist work, we feel that it is important that we apologize to you as a listener, to all of our listeners and to our community and our clients because we haven't, we recognize that we have done harm by not centering race in our eating disorder work and on the podcast and take responsibility for the impact of this. Um, we assume that there's impact that we don't fully understand yet. We'll be working to better understand this and be accountable. That's very important to us to be accountable for this in the years to come. I feel like it, it feels really important to talk about the places where you guys haven't been anti-racist before talking about like leading a conversation about anti-racism. Because I know for a lot of our listeners, especially after this brief hiatus, nobody necessarily will know what you guys have been up to at Opal to implement new structures or to be kind of reflecting on the systems that have been in place or the systems that haven't been in place and some of the failures there, some of the blind spots. Um, and I know that we've had some conversations as a group around like where we have, um, underemphasized some really important intersectionalities and all the content that we've brought to the podcast. I know that we can talk about that some, we will talk about that some later on, but I, I think it feels important to hear first when you guys are, are saying you want to yeah, be doing and leading and, and reflecting on the anti-racist work on this platform, what that means specifically and kind of how you guys have gotten there. 
So I think first, I the one of the simplest things that comes to my mind is just that the contrast um, that is happening within the walls here at Opal, within the conversation between Lexi Kara and I, is just that by centering race and especially Black and Indigenous bodies, we're just when whatever topic it is that we might be engaging or decisions that we're making, we're talking about race and ethnicity. And so when I think about being anti-racist and maybe what we weren't doing and kind of what your question was there, Carter, I just think that we haven't historically been always bringing that conversation in and allowing, well, yeah, and it's it's the blind spot of whiteness, right? We have all had that whiteness just be the predominant dominant experience. And so the the shift that has been experienced over the last several months, or I mean, how long have we been off this podcast? Few? I don't know. I I think we were recording last in mid-May, I bet. Oh, okay. Maybe early May. And we're now recording like second week of July. Yeah. So I guess the last couple of months um, is just that. So the phrase that I hear so often is centering. You need to center Black, Indigenous, people of color, and the issues related to those marginalized communities within the context of our relationship as leaders at Opal and the changes within Opal, our sort of awareness and analysis that we're doing around even this Appetite podcast. It's just that. It's like allowing for our conversations to be about that and seeing where we haven't done that in each of our conversations when we're talking about appetite, movement, Mm food, nutrition, emotions. So that's my simple answer to that. And the shift and commitment to that. Uh, and as Lexi's saying, you can do that in your head. You can do that by checking off a box. But what I see happening within the three of us and within Opal as a system is more than the checking of the box. Mm-hmm. And so we're good, you know, Lexi being so, you know, to say like, we're okay doing this publicly, but that means that these are some of the first steps that we're taking in these conversations to talk publicly about it. And we are inherently leaders because we have an organization of people that we are leading, but that doesn't mean that within the anti-racism movement that we're a leader. But I would also say that there is a void of eating disorder treatment centers doing this work. So we feel a call to be like, okay, well, no one's leading as an organization in the treatment of eating disorders. And so, well, who else better than us, I guess, because we are emboldened and feel committed to this. And we've always been uh, grounded in social justice work. We've always centered fat bodies. And we have not done a good job of centering black bodies, fat black bodies. You know, we came into this work with having a very strong lens around weight stigma and weight justice and totally missed the boat on race. I'll I'll speak for myself, totally missed the boat on race and being very unaware of how whiteness fit into the whole picture. And there was a lot of disservice in, in the work that we've been doing by not having that be a part of the lens and seeing the intersectionality between all of the marginalized populations. And so we have, we, I, I feel like we've had a lot of catching up to do 
and we've had this groove that's been deep in our kind of makeup around marginalized populations. There's been a catching up, a learning, a grief around the miss, but also this deep groove around seeing the people that have been devalued and caring about the people that have been devalued and caring about people that have been devalued, having access to treatment and to having access to being cared for to be liberated. And so we have not done a good job of representation in that in this podcast. And uh, but like the words that they're saying, I feel really connected to the word commitment. And um, I feel like what I've seen with the three of us is there's a more transformation of it versus an acting or performative way of of doing this work. I, th- I think that we also ha- we have a lot of humility coming into it. And we know that we don't actually know what it's all going to feel like or look like. And there's something to that in terms of when we think about allowing for relinquishing of our power to leaders of color within our organization and what that would mean in terms of changing treatment modalities and changing some of the structures within our space and our treatment. We feel very excited about that. And we know that there's going to be discomfort. There's going to be parts that we're going to be like, whoa, that's what, ah, e. And I don't want this to sound naive, I guess. I think that we're looking at it going, this is going to be hard and going to push us in ways that are, we have potentially never pushed. Uh, We have never actually relinquished our privilege and our power in a way as big as what we're wanting and committing to do. And so um, we don't, you know, it's like we, the excitement and the hope and the, the alignment with our ethics and why that feels like it's the right next steps. And I guess I just want to acknowledge the fact that I, I still personally, I don't know exactly what that's going to seriously mean for me emotionally, physically, economically, socially. Like I, I don't actually know what that's going to be mean for me, but there are points in that, that I have had that, um, the facing that reality and the, the, when weighing all of that, it's just like, oh my gosh, like I want that the moments where we have known that we have not served clients of color within our treatment center or staff of color within our staff culture and environment, well, those just run to the surface and we're like, we can do better and we must do better. So um, we've been, we've, first, I, I want to say that we owe a lot to Iko Bethia, who's been um, a consultant with us within the last year. And we really have learned a lot from her and found a sense of ourselves in the anti-racism work. Gosh, uh, we just have such appreciation for uh, Gloria Lucas from Nalgona Positivity Pride and her impact on us these past couple of years and appreciate her her voice. Gloria's... um, been to Opal and trained our staff and has done and does just an amazing job of helping us all understand how historical trauma impacts eating disorders and is such a major player in eating disorder onset and recovery. And we owe a lot to her as well. And we also have been working with Desiree Attaway and we've been learning 
about the liberatory consciousness model, which is a Barbara Love's model. It involves four, four A words, awareness, analysis, action, and accountability and allyship. And I've heard recently that Barbara um, has moved accountability in front of action. And there's been, we felt a lot of urgency to move into action before we'd done the analysis work, before we'd done our own work that we needed to do before we move into the action phase of the liberatory consciousness model. What can often happen, as um, Desiree Attaway shares with us, is that we, you know, a lot of folks will move from awareness straight into action. And we've been spending quite a bit of time in the analysis side of things so that we can have a really well-rooted, solid foundation in which to do this work. What has that analysis looked like? Like, what have you been analyzing? One example that I could give was just uh, we were presented with sort of the list of characteristics of white supremacy. And that was, I don't know, maybe eight months ago, nine months ago, something like that. And I think the analysis for me is looking at some of those elements and I can pick out, I'll pick out uh, perfectionism as one of them, or even kind of highlighting education. And I don't know exactly how it's phrased, but just sort of like elevating education. And that's something that when it's, when it, the analysis for me is like, okay, so how are we, productivity is another one, right? So it's like, how then are we watching actions happening? So uh, if it's uh, the, the sense of urgency piece, right? And like that then pushes and then recognizing and having that awareness to say, wait a minute, that just happened for me. I felt this sense of urgency or I felt this inclination to perfectionism or I thought about the, you know, elevated somebody above someone else based on education and then go, okay, wait, I'm aware of that. So now now what, like the analysis is, if, if I were to do that differently, what would change? Like, what's a policy within Opal as a system that could change that then wouldn't contribute to and only elevate the um, more white supremacy values? So we're kind of re-editing our website. And so there's an example of that as we think about how we want to show our staff. And as we show the sort of gallery of photos, we were thinking about just putting first and last name and not putting all the credentials after all of them. And sure, like you'll click on it and then you'll get the full bio, but like, what would it mean for people to just like get to just look at pictures and be like, those are people. And then sure, there's still is gonna be that information somewhere in there, but what if, what if the first hit isn't like that person has 12 letters and that person has three letters and that person, I don't know. So that to me feels like a deepening, like there's an awareness that was learned, but then there's an analysis of like the experience with our website ex communicates X, how about if we shifted that so that there would be a different experience of it? Yeah, I was thinking too of just the word observation of like all the stuff. So, you know, we we did a lot of racial identity work. Um, we used the workbook called the Racial Healing Workbook. And then, of course, reading lots of um, how to be an anti-racist and white fragility. And so as we're learning these things, I think then there's the analysis to me is the observation of having that layer of kind of seeing what's happening in our day to day that is perpetuating more of those white supremacist values. And of course, there's going to be blind spots along the way too. Um, we're not going to be able to have this filter that's perfectly, you know, again, that we're, we're going to be able to catch everything. Like Julie's talking about 
examples. I feel like we're each having that those examples throughout um, the course of the day and the week of having this observation around how are we on, in the anti-racist or racist spectrum in each of these groups and our website, our space, the talks we're giving and prepping. I feel like each thing that we're showing up to That to me is the observation of where have we not been anti-racist, where have we had colorblindness or a more racist lens through our whiteness. So, Kara, can you give an example? Because I know you've been preparing some different slides and talks and like give an example of what you've done in that regard. Yeah, so I'm I happen to be preparing for a coach's clinic that's coming up in in August to be honest, I, I, in some of me, as part of me just wanted to say, I don't want to be participating in this, in this clinic at this time as I'd I'd rather have another voice be heard. And at the same time, um, I also felt challenged to, to bring on this new lens. And so even looking through my presentation and what are the, what are the messages that I'm giving to coaches and where is, um, one of one of the common things I teach on for coaches is identity work and doing identity work with their athletes. And I have been really missing the boat in terms of the different, again, intersectionalities that affect, that have impact on their identities. So a lot of times I'm talking to um, distance running coaches. If I'm not talking about the black athlete, that informs a lot of their different identities. And so I, if I'm just talking about personality and temperament and likes and dislikes, I mean, that's a very white centric lens of, of looking at identity and not taking into account how their race affects how they are experiencing themselves um, and their identities, how any other kind of non-dominant identity that they hold is going to have an impact on how they view their identity. And I just, as a, as again, a, as a white person that holds a lot of dominant identities, I, I think I've been, yeah, really missing the boat on making that, uh, that identity work fit for all people. <laughs> so I think that's, that's been a, a, one of many things that I'm overhauling in, in my coaches trainings. Yeah, that, that feels like such an important thing to be naming. Of course, the inner, it feels like such an important thing to be naming the, the intersectionalities within the athlete, because I think that, you know, even within that category, um, the black athlete is revered in a really particular way and objectified in a really particular way. It's really interesting to think about how the conversation around athletics would, would change. Eating disorders in athletics would change if it focused on the culture of white supremacy as being in the heart of it. And plenty of the conversations that we've already had have really poked at the toxicity of that culture without overtly naming it as white supremacist. Or thinking about perfectionism, right, as part of white supremacy and thinking of how perfectionism is, is very much a part of athletic culture and how people from non-dominant cultures are, 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 for example, athletes of color have to prove, oftentimes have to prove themselves and have more, like they, they might not feel valued within their sport context. And so, yeah, just again, that relationship between perfect, their perfectionism can look very different than a white athlete's perfectionism. Mm -hmm. But then of course there's sports where 
I mean, it's, it's different across sports um, as yeah. well with how much representation are there um, in terms of racial diversity, which of course, distance running looks a lot different than some of the other sports where there's more, more representation. I know I've said this at some points um, when we've been talking about like sort of uh, thinness as a white ideal, but I do feel like part of the conversation in anti-racism on this platform in particular, um, I, I could just be flipped on its head entirely. Or maybe a better way to put that is that our conversation around eating disorders needs to be flipped entirely on its head because you can't talk about an eating disorder without talking about white supremacy because every single contributing factor to an eating disorder is a symptom of white supremacy and mm-hmm. white culture. That is the basis of the work that should be being done within the eating disorder community. And then somehow it gets skipped and then reinforces whiteness and reinforces the white body and reinforces the help of the white body and the healing of the white body as being more valuable than the healing of other bodies. It's maddening. And so I know that we have not tackled that overtly enough Mm -hmm. um, and not been diligent enough in speaking to that. And I know that we each have different varying levels of awareness of that and process around understanding the the layers of that. But I personally would want to name that that feels like really essential shift for opal um and shift for the appetite too and makes me curious i know kara you obviously just we just talked about athletics but i'd love to hear from julie and lexi a little bit about how you guys think about your spheres at opal and your leadership in rodbt lexi and your leadership with um, nutrition julie and hayes the health at every size community i think the other element of change happening here is the wrestling that many people in the health at every size community have been doing and we have along with them trying to hold on to what is good about health at every size and the movement and the paradigm that that offered us to found opal on health at every size as a weight inclusive lens and not weight centric but then also wrestling with the ways that that has also come from so many white supremacist and ableist views and so we recognize that there are ways within our application of health at every size at Opal that we want to continue to analyze and look really closely at to ensure that we're taking the best of the best (laughs) of that approach and leaving the the rest behind. So another area where we've been giving lots of thought is in our radically open dialectical behavioral therapy approach. And we've um, developed a think tank around this, and we're going to start to work on looking at RODBT from an anti-racist perspective. And we have um, been aware of ways in which RODBT is problematic. And we are in a state of analysis around understanding how it is functioning to serve racism or anti-racism in the months to come. I hope to be able to speak a lot more clearly about specifically where we landed in our analysis and and share that more more widely with the community. And I know Catherine Catherine Manbeck and Tina Alvarado, who teach our RO skills class here at, at Opal, have already done a great deal of adapting RO within the classroom with our with our clients. And I hope to be able to share that important work with you 
soon. So we want to be an eating disorder treatment facility, and that is a place where people of color, Black people can come and feel represented and tended to and where where their experience is centered. And we've done a lot of analysis about how we can do that, given that we are white women owners of Opal. Our conclusion around that has been that we need to relent our power to people of color and to center leadership around um, a person of color. When we think about that, when we think about what that would mean, if that feels like centrally important to all that would happen here, because I think Julie Kerr and I understand that this is about us letting go of power and all that comes with power to some degree, right? And, or to a large degree. And we understand, I guess, maybe we don't fully yet understand what we're saying, but we know <laughs> what it's going to mean to live into this. But it's our, under- it's our conclusion in our analysis that that is a key part of the change here at Opal if we truly want to center BIPOC eating disorder recovery. Yeah, and to to Lexi's point, I think we're all aware of the long-term nature of this, that this is a lifelong process of change. And so our our hearts um, have really shifted and transformed in the commitment aspect of it. And we know we're in it for the long haul. And that learning is in the long haul. The um, making mistakes are going to be part of the process. And it's been exciting to see the three of us be this deeply committed. The actual, I mean, this hasn't been done, right? Like eating, like structured higher level of care eating disorder treatment has never been led by people of color. So I don't think we actually know what it's going to become. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think that feels really exciting to us to be giving somebody the the platform to do that. And the structures, the, the you know, the structures, the power, the, um, the platform to, to do that. So... Yeah, it is really exciting. It also, I mean, it turns everything on its head, hopefully. Um, I used that language earlier, but that's the the like sort of thought and image I keep having in my mind that the head of power gets sort of turned. And my imagination is that the impact even on white clients in that space um, would be so much greater so that they're not causing microaggressions in their mere presence in treatment if they're not led by other white mm-hmm. clinicians, other white people. So to have people of color at the helm sets an entirely different tone. I'm curious what that looks like and means for you guys specifically, or this is the first time I'm hearing you guys use any of that language. Our very nature of our roles come with a lot of power because we're the co-founders of Opal and we've been functioning as kind of the leaders in all the spheres of our space. And so that actually is one of the biggest changes we are moving towards is relinquishing some of our power over the system of Opal and both in the clinical space, the administrative side of things. And one of those specific steps is I, Kara, as clinical director, am planning to step away from some of my clinical leadership. And we are committed and excited to be 
bringing in in that clinical leadership a black clinician to have more power over the larger system of opal and so we are in a process that we are going to recruiting clinicians from around the country to see if um, we can find a person that wants to be a part of our treatment center and provide that leadership and I think we're all aware of we're going to be making a lot of changes and there's a lot of changes again that we're not that we don't understand yet that that are going to be occurring but it feels like a very key and important change for us to be making to for that will have a trickle down effect to all aspects of our business and i would say that we had that desire you know without maybe as strong of an intent to have a staff that brings in different lived stories than us as us as founders and owners. And over the course of the last few years, just continued to, I would say, quote unquote, make excuses like, well, there's the barrier of higher education, or there's the barrier of we live in Seattle, or there's the barrier of fill in the blank. And I guess I would just name publicly, like we're done with making those excuses. And we just want to take the next step to truly make that happen. And, you know, the leadership aspect feels really, really important to making the change fully in all the aspects of Opal as a staff culture, as well as as a treatment experience for clients. And we know that we need more staff of color throughout the whole organization. So we also in some of the other openings of jobs and hiring that we're doing, that's also a high priority for us to continue to have this space, um, not just have a tokenized person, but rather truly have there be change and voices and influence um, from all sorts of different angles throughout our system. And while we're, we're not living into that change yet, we don't have a black clinician in leadership currently. And that's with that gap, we still are moving forward with with making some changes and taking the learning that we've had to make systemic changes across the board. And I think we want to share some of those, um, some of those specifics. That's a really powerful move to, to try and change the whole work setup. Again, exciting to think about you guys taking the risk to have the whole system shift when there is no map for that which I think is the same conversation that, well, it's a, it's a connected conversation in some ways, the way that I hear it to even the conversation around the abolition of the police, that it's about, it's about total transformation. And a lot of the time when we, when we start unpacking the veins and threads and like every single thing that comes out of um, that first initial awareness of racism. If we keep going down that road, I believe that there's no way to move forward without going like, oh, wow, nothing works anymore. (laughs) Like we got to change everything or we've got to change. Like even the way that we're thinking about this is reflective of white supremacy or the way that we're working around it is reflective of those ideals. So it's exciting that you guys are thinking about doing it in a way in all these different spheres of Opal that transform in a practiced, almost experiential, but like lived into way, you know, having been a clinician at Opal too, that it's, it's difficult to ask people to face their racism during treatment. Like the idea of, of um, facing their fat phobia is now an accepted thing. But 
in the years that I was at Opal, a lot of clients were like, well, that doesn't have anything to do with this. Like, actually, it totally does. I think that people often have treated people of color with an eating disorder treatment setting if they are considering race as a factor or an intersection of their identity or an intersection that impacts their eating disorder um, as sort of a special topic rather than it being entirely centered and then also something that would impact all of the white clients there too to be reflecting on how whiteness has created their eating disorder. And that is a really difficult conversation to have when it's mostly white people. So something that we're rolling out at the end of July that's been in the works for several months is that we are going to integrate a didactic group called Systems of Oppression Didactic. So we have within our partial hospitalization program and intensive outpatient a didactic. And it has been health at every size didactic and exercise and sport didactic. And we are adding in a systems of oppression didactic. And I think to speak to what you're saying, it's, it is for all the clients and actually the will definitely be the, the clients of color coming in will be informed the content and they will be able to be given the choice if they want to participate in it or not. But the reality is that it will be that teaching of like, here's vocabulary. This is how this intersects with your eating disorder development and and ultimately uh, how anti-racism work can help you in finding full recovery as well. So we're really thankful. I know we're very thankful Mm -hmm. for staff that have been investing a lot of time and Mm -hmm. consultants, ICO and others that have been guiding the curriculum development. But again, something that we feel like is unique that all of our clients will be educated. These didactics are more teaching, right? But then that content and common language is going to be brought into hopefully, right, therapy and nutrition and groups and all of that stuff. And I don't know if it's taught too much to say, but, you know, a lot of this spurs out of the fact that, you know, white people just don't talk about race and haven't been given any ability to have the language and the context to, or to a community that, to be able to talk about it. Yeah, and or so, to know that they're white. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> to even be brought that awareness, right? I realize in this, you know, we're not talking much about the podcast itself, The Appetite. And I think as we've become really committed and and working on our anti-racism work within Opal, I think that is our commitment to the podcast as well, that we are committing to bringing anti-racism into our conversations and having it be centered into like Carter saying, turning kind of our conversations on its, on their head and bringing you all into that as well. And so for that, we also ask for accountability. We ask for accountability from listeners of where, where are our blind spots um, as we move forward with the appetite and we discuss food, body, movement, and through an anti-racist lens. And we know we will be missing things. So we we ask for your voices and we ask for you to um, let us know when, we, when we've made a mistake and, and we're missing something that's really important. So we're excited about that. And, and we have a lot of... Um, like others have been saying, a lot of humility around and around that, but committed to facing our discomfort as we navigate these conversations moving forward. We talked about this a little bit before we actually started pressing record today, but we also are aware that the majority of our listeners are white. And so in that, we are, I think, trying to balance some of 
being open around our processes about um, anti-racism while also being aware that we wouldn't necessarily want listeners of color to have to carry that or even sit through that if that would feel harmful to them or unnecessary. And we hope and trust that that would be something that you can choose for yourself. Maybe you already have chosen for yourself on that, but we're aware of like wanting to really, really center voices of color while also using the platform to be able to share some of the process behind the scenes too. So Mm -hmm. um, we'll be working to balance that. And I think that ask for accountability, I know that then it can easily sneak into people of color, educating and helping the white people to better understand. And I just want to name that we have awareness of that and we would want um, for anyone that would be stepping into a role like that to know that they can that they can expect that we will be compensating you for your support and in that way. So yeah, we do want that. We don't expect anything for free in that way. And um, understand that if you do want to <laughs> share reflections or feedback, um, hold us accountable. Um, and you're from a marginalized community and wanting to give us insight about your perspective where we want to have you feel like you're being respected in that. Okay. Well, I believe that this is um, the first of many conversations, but also we hope to be back soon with some content that actually starts getting all this in action rather than kind of talking about talking about anti-racism. And so we will look forward to seeing you guys next time. Thank you so much for listening and for joining us. Thank you to Hans Anderson for editing and for sound. Thank you to Camille Dodson for all her support on the podcast. Thank you to Jack Straw Cultural Center, who we don't get to visit lately, but we still really appreciate them. Um, And to Aaron Davidson for the Appetites original music. If you want to learn more about Opal, make sure that you visit us online at opalfoodandbody.com. You can also follow along with us um, in a really different way more on social media at Opal Food and Body, both on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, actually. So find us there and reach out if you have any questions, comments, or just want to connect. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye.